0: and welcome to What China Wants. My name is Stuart Patterson, and I'm joined as ever by Sam Olson. Hello. The subject of this week's podcast is an introduction to China's military and security global footprint. So Sam, you're the expert on this. But before you start, I just wanted to read out a few quotes from China's paramount leader of the moment, Xi Jinping, and ask you for your thoughts on them. So, th- there are a few things that strike me about these, but let me um, have a go here. Always listen to and follow the party's orders and march to wherever the party points. That was Xi Jinping addressing the PLA on their 91st anniversary. The head of the CMC, this article goes on to say, and this is from the China People's Daily, also urged the armed forces to bear in mind the sacred duty of fighting for the people as the country set out its military-civilian integration as one of its key national strategies. I firmly believe that our heroic PLA has the confidence and capability to defeat any intruder. Our heroic PLA has the confidence and capability to safeguard the nation's sovereignty, security, and development interests. So, Sam, clearly the party and the PLA are very closely linked. Can you elaborate and explain that for our listeners a bit?
1: Yeah, sure. So thanks for those quotes, Stuart. They do bring it home as to the closeness between the People's Liberation Army and the party. And it it is a very different model to that in the West. To be sort of straight down the line, the PLA is the armed wing of the Communist Party. And that is a very different relationship to, say, the UK, where the government and the armed forces are slightly different in the sense of the armed forces swear allegiance to the monarch and not to the government of the day, whereas in China they do swear allegiance to the party, which is therefore the government. And what this means is that the PLA and the Air Force and the Navy uh, associated with it are, in effect, just tools of whatever the Chinese Communist Party wants. And that has been the case since the establishment of the the Communist Party in China in the 1920s. So basically, what you're saying is
0: the relationship is as if the Conservative Party was in charge of our own military here, or the Democrat Party were in charge of the military in the United States. That's the kind of constitutional setup that China has. Is that right? Right.
1: Yeah, correct. I'm sure that there are people within the Conservative Party uh, and in the Labour Party, of course, who would like their own armed wings, uh, but <laughs> it's, it's probably uh, for the best that, that that doesn't happen. That hasn't stopped it in China, and the whole raison d'être of, of the PLA is to do what the the CCP wants and to keep the CCP in power. So, Sam
0: Xi Jinping is the head of the Central Military Command, so that is presumably a very important title for him in addition to being president of the country and also general secretary of the Communist Party. Well,
1: what's important here, and this is and why it's important for looking at what China is doing in terms of its, its military influence around the world, is that you have two parallel organizations, exactly as you did with both the fascists and especially with the communists in the Second World War in, in the Soviet Union, where you have the military side and you have the political side. And this has been commented on a few times, the fact that, Within the Chinese Navy, for example, the People's Liberation Army Navy, the plan, they have the captain of the ship, but they also have a military commissar type person who can, in theory, overrule what the Marine captain of the ship is doing. Uh, And that makes it difficult when you're trying to work out if you've got an American ship and a Chinese ship coming together, who is it that takes the final decision as to whether the ship should swerve or, or crash into the American destroyer? As with everything within the PLA uh, and its relationship with the CCP, it's hard to know where one side starts and the other side doesn't. And that includes the economic side as well, Stuart. I mean, there's been pushback a bit recently, but you know, in the last 20, 30 years, we've seen an enormous amount of a crossover between the economic interests of the country and the PLA. And for example, the founder of Huawei, of course, was famously uh, from the People's Liberation Army. Of course, and we'll have more on Huawei
0: shortly, I'm sure. So is China actually a global military power? How has their footprint expanded and should we be worried by it?
1: Uh, good question. Uh, so there is a lot of worry about China's ability to, well, there's someone once told me, to conquer the world. But I don't think that that is really the case. And, and to put it into comparison, China has only got a couple of overseas bases that we know of, uh, well, one really and a few others potentially, whereas America has approximately 750 and the UK has uh, as many. I mean, there was a report recently suggested that the UK has 145 different military locations, military installations around the world. I'm not sure it's that high, but there's no doubt that the UK and, and even France have got far more military bases around the world than China does. But that doesn't necessarily mean that China doesn't want to be a global military power. And in fact, they have specifically said over recent months and years that they do want to increase their footprint. For example, in strategically important choke points like in the Straits of Hormuz, they've said that they will actively manage those areas, including we think, through military means, if it impacts on China. So long answer, but to put it in shortened terms, They're not a military power of global note now, but that doesn't mean that they aren't actively increasing their footprint in the military sense, but also the military sense and the security sense.
0: Okay, but so let's look at things a little bit here through China's perspective. China's the largest trading nation in the world. It has a really quite chronic dependency on fuel imports, particularly oil through the Straits of Hormuz and through the Malacca Strait. It's quite dependent on trade for food security as well. um, And of course, key inputs into its industrial complex. So wouldn't any country faced with these kind of strategic challenges quite naturally look to play a role either collaboratively with other countries or on its own to secure those sea lanes to ensure the continuing function of its its society. It'd be quite natural, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. It really is. But a lot of people in the West are fearful of it because they see the fact that China is trying to push its influence, not just in military terms, but in many other terms, especially in the economic sphere. Uh, and that the military side is just maybe the deal support for the other initiatives it's got. And I think that many in the West who think that are quite right to be worried if that expansion of China's military and security footprint does start to give it much more leverage and to basically undermine the West and Western ability to control trade and to, and to dominate uh, international relations in the way it's done for the last what, couple of hundred years. Okay, so in China's expansion
0: then uh, overseas, it, it's expanding military footprint. What bases do they actually have, and what bases could you identify, or potential bases, would you
1: identify as ones that they would deem most desirable? Right. So officially, the only place they've got at the moment is Djibouti in East Africa, which Djibouti people might know is also home to a French base and an American base. So it's sort of it's making a lot of money, I suppose, from that, but there are accusations that china is about to open a naval base in cambodia in riam which is a port there's so called evidence of china dredging to make it a deep water port ready for their military vessels to come in then you also have accusations by the americans especially that china is trying to open a military bases in central asia and western africa perhaps equatorial guinea and even other places in asia although The list does seem to change quite a bit, depending on who you talk to. But in reality, Djibouti is the only place now. And of course, you have the South China Sea Islands, which are not necessarily military bases, but more military forts. The one that's been in the press recently is about the Solomon Islands. But that is not just a military base. That is very much a security relationship with China that may become military base. i think that's an important note china doesn't just look around the world and say we want to open a military base like a royal navy shipyard or something like that they're very much looking to integrate defense and security and use one to help the other and that is where you mentioned about the military civil fusion bit comes in yeah i'm glad you mentioned this sam
0: because our listeners might well have read a certain amount about China's sort of extraterritorial reach with regard to Uyghur dissidents, for example, or critics of the regime, or for that matter, just straightforward criminals who fled justice in China. Also, sort of financial crimes. You know, there are a large number of purported uh, perpetrators of of financial crimes who have fled China. So so what's that all about? I mean, uh, listeners might well have heard of Operation Skynet. I think it's Open Skynet. Does does China actually have the ability to extract people and bring them back to the mainland to face justice? Are there
1: examples of that? So China's security focus, which is different to its military focus, is long been sort of ignored by many uh, until the Uyghur stuff started to happen and people suddenly realised that China does actually have quite a long arm of the law around the world. And And there's a few things that need to be remembered. First of all is that under Xi Jinping, the concept of overseas Chinese has changed. And it may sound a bit sort of finickety, but it's important for this conversation because until recently, you had overseas Chinese who'd been living abroad for centuries maybe, and you might have had people that have moved out of China in the last few years. Now, of course, people who've moved out of the last few years, if they've done something wrong in China, it's quite legitimate for the Chinese authorities to request them being extradited back. You know, It's what we do, what lots of other countries do. But the issue is that Xi Jinping has now basically said that all Chinese living abroad, no matter how long ago your ancestors left the mainland, you are now, in essence, beholden to Beijing. And this hasn't started to percolate down into active security measures as far as we know, although if anyone's got any evidence for that, let me know. But what it is, is laying the groundwork for China's long arm of the law to extend to basically anyone that it thinks it should be subject to Chinese laws. That links very much into the national security law when they've been looking, they being Beijing, have been looking to bring all civilian and military uh, firms under the control or at least under the dominance of the Chinese central planners when it comes to building out the military. So there is a distinct trend have been pushed by Beijing over the last few years to basically make sure that anything to do with China, whether it's the people, whether it's the companies, they all owe their allegiance, they all owe their strength to uh, supporting the the Communist Party. It's as simple as that.
0: Okay, so what you're saying here is that Xi Jinping is, is trying to put in place an apparatus that means that anyone of Chinese ethnicity, no matter what their actual nationality is, can be held accountable to the party.
1: That certainly seems to be the way that they're going, yes. And and linking that back into their global defence and security footprint, if we just look at the military side, you might think, well, they're not that, that's successful. They've only got Djibouti, maybe a few other bases, but it's the security side, which we really need to look to. But the Solomon Islands, and we'll do a separate podcast on that is interesting because it's, it's about security cooperation and, and they may have the ability to put ships down there, the Chinese, that is, but it's, it really starts off by looking at the, at the police deployments there by China. And this is something that China has been doing in other countries as well, for example, Cambodia or Laos or other countries in Southeast Asia. And they're trying to do elsewhere around the world too. And this is all about security arrangements, not necessarily defense arrangements. But if we just look at the military side, it can be slightly deceiving in terms of their their reach. But at the end of the day, why are they doing all this? And that is a question that I think we need to explore a bit more as well. Is it because... Beijing are looking to to actively control people around the world of Chinese heritage just for the sake of it or is it actually part of trying to keep control at home
0: Okay now Xi Jinping often talks about the importance of digitalization and technology and we know that China has deployed a heavy industrial policy aimed at sort of cultivating the industries of tomorrow as it were and that China takes its self-sufficiency in these industries extremely seriously. What role does technology play in China's military and security footprint globally? Should we be viewing companies such as Huawei as being in the vanguard of spreading China's military footprint, or are these
1: simply commercial entities engaged in, in global trade? So, as I mentioned earlier... The national security laws in China now mean that every single person and company has to support the national security apparatus, basically, and that includes Huawei. And so when a few years ago, there was all this talk by Huawei, especially in the UK, around the fact that it was an independent company and the fact that it would you know, never sort of divulge any secrets, it was just, just not true. They are compelled by law at the risk of their people going to prison or disappearing in a slightly less judicial way, uh, of doing exactly what the Chinese authorities want them to do. And that's China's prerogative to be able to put that in place. But to deny it is slightly disingenuous. But anyway, the important thing is, is that the security apparatus is very much linked now to the digital side. And what we're seeing is a huge push by China to allow it to sort of facilitate it's technology companies to spread around the world and you know at the more innocuous side is tiktok and uh, maybe some e-commerce but perhaps at the more interesting side it is the use of surveillance cameras of border control machines etc many of which are linked into the establishment and the building of digital infrastructure so the way it works is, is simple so China we'll say to country X, uh, we'll build out your 5G networks, we'll build out your smart city initiatives. And within those smart city initiatives, we will put in surveillance technologies. And all of that together means that there is basically control by Chinese companies and therefore the Chinese state by extension on the digital uh, infrastructure of that country. And where it becomes more nefarious is as the digital infrastructure spreads, And you get the adoption of China's GPS equivalent, which is called Baido, into running transportation systems or into running security and military equipment whether it's missiles or whether it's planes or whatever it is, you suddenly realise that the country's gone from just uh, allowing a 5G network to be built to that country being wholly dependent digitally on China, which gives China huge influence in almost every sphere of modern life over that country.
0: Uh, so so what you seem to be saying, Sam, is that the number of bases that a particular country might have overseas or the number of ships that a country might be able to deploy into any region is really a very poor measure of the military and security footprint, because it's so multifaceted now through technology, data, etc., that we need a new paradigm of measuring sort of capabilities. Would that be fair?
1: Yeah, and if you take Klaus Witz, the German military theorist from many centuries ago, he said, "War is politics by the means." Uh, and what we're seeing now is is the evolution of war and security concerns, and to be much more technology led, and to basically be spread around many different areas of life. Uh, and if you look at the Russia Ukraine side, you know, something that's become very apparent is the impact on world grain and food security because of the outsized impact of Russia and Ukraine on grain exports. And so that obviously has massive security implications internally for countries. So you're right, Stuart, we do need to move beyond just looking at how many bases uh, abroad a country has to see what the impact and the influence uh, of a certain nation is in terms of its, its ability to push and influence the national security autonomy of another state. Now, I'm sure there'll be some listeners to this who are saying, well, look at Russia's
0: performance in Ukraine relative to what the various intelligence agencies told us Russia was capable of. And on the evidence so far, it would perhaps suggest that people massively overestimated Russia's military capabilities. Is there a danger that we're making the same mistake here with China in terms of overblowing the importance of their global footprint and i suppose that would also link to to another question which is you know when people measure defense expenditure between countries they tend to do it in sort of nominal terms but but does china get a lot more bang for its buck when it spends a dollar on defense than than america does
1: We've got a few things there. In terms of whether America or China is spending more, uh, there are debates about what, about the actual veracity of China's defense budget. But at the end of the day, the advantage in terms of spending power is certainly with America. China has nowhere near. They, in fact, are spending far more on internal security than external defense. But bear in mind also that America, as much as its critics will tell you, has spent the last sort of 50 years fighting wars in every corner of the world. Its military is very well adapted to fighting in different areas, different countries, and China's isn't. And the last war that China fought, the last major war was in 1979 when it invaded Vietnam and got a very bloody nose as a result. So there simply isn't the, the expertise in within China to compare. And not only that, but it's logistics now. Many people would have seen the, the struggles that Russia is having with its logistics in in Ukraine, and and that's certainly the case with with China. The in terms of its its abilities, America has far superior global logistics than than China does in terms of ships, in terms of air support, etc.
0: Okay, so that's interesting. Can I pull you up on that? Because I mean, presumably China's commercial actors, I mean, particularly state owned enterprises, but, but more generally just commercial actors are there to support any potential logistics operations that are required. I mean, if you look at China's ownership of ports around the world or their ownership of merchant shipping and Huawei's development of logistics software and port solutions and what have you. I I, I would have thought that the likes of Costco and and other state-owned enterprises involved in logistics globally would have unparalleled reach and an unparalleled ability to support Chinese military operations around the world. Is, is, Is that not the case?
1: It might be, but there is no real integration at the moment because they haven't really had the experience between China's private logistics capabilities globally and China's military. Now, it could be that uh, as and when a war started, that that was something that came together very quickly. But at the moment, the advantage again is with America and the West because we've just got greater experience in in terms of of logistics and getting things moved around the world for military purposes.
0: So is that what Xi Jinping means when he talks about military-civilian fusion? or is there another meaning to that?
1: No, there is that, but it's also about the development of technology. For example, dual-use technologies in self-driving cars, which can also be used to guide missiles as well. Uh, And this is a bedrock of military development within China is to make sure that they they take as much as they can from the civilian world. And a great example is graphene, the new wonder material invented in the UK, but the National Graphene Centre made the mistake of employing an intern from the People's Liberation Army. And it wasn't a surprise that very shortly afterwards, graphene started to be used within China. In fact, there is now approximately 4,000 companies involved with graphene and graphene production in China compared to a couple in the UK. And those civilian usages for graphene are very much being used uh, by the People's Liberation Army as well. And you have that in the West, the connection between civilian and military, but it is, it's much more top down in, in China and that specific policy pushed by the Chinese to get their military ready to be able to withstand or even confront the West. So what you're describing there really is a sort of
0: militarization of the entirety of China's economy at an extreme.
1: Yeah, in, in essence, it hasn't got that stage yet, but as and when war happens, uh, if indeed it does, then China is expecting its whole economy to be quickly moved into war fighting mode. Whether that would work or not is a different matter, but at least that's the theory. Hmm. Well, that's a scary thought. Well, I think the most important thing to note about China's global security and, and military footprint is that it might sound big but it's untried, untested. And the West very much has the advantage in terms of experience and in accumulative and spending. But the question is, does China want to be a global military power or does it actually just want to be able to defend its, its core interests in its own part of the world? And a really good quote that comes to mind always when I'm thinking about this is from Jack Ma, when he was questioned about the fact that eBay was so much bigger and so much more resource laden than Alibaba. He said, yes, well, eBay might be the great white shark in the ocean, but Alibaba is the crocodile in the Yangtze, and we will defeat him if he ever comes on shore here. And I think that that is certainly what Chinese military and security planners are looking at uh, with regard to maintaining China's position in its own backyard. It's got a huge fleet. It's got, uh, apparently... Uh, very good missile technologies, although untested. Uh, and so if there was going to be something happening in its own backyard, for example, Taiwan, I think that's a very different proposition to trying to imagine China conquering huge waves of Africa or Europe or something like that, which is really unfeasible at this level. But at the same time, watching its security apparatus pushed abroad, does mean that it is more likely it will be able to control what its own people are doing abroad, but also it gives it leverage over other countries in terms of especially the domestic security situation. And I think it's more important for commentators to look at that and the influence of China on on the domestic security situations of country X, Y, Z, than just saying how many bases China's got, because that is meaningless. So... Sam, thanks very much for that.
0: Uh, a fascinating introduction to China's military and security global footprint. Next week, we will take this a bit further in discussing the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on China and how that might play with China's interests.
1: And, and you might actually get a chance to do some uh, answering your questions next week, because I'm going to ask you a lot about the economic side as well. Uh, Are you prepared for that? Absolutely. And I think the economic consequences
0: are are, are quite far reaching, actually, um, both in terms of a rejigging of global trade patterns, not just in energy, but in resources generally, uh, but also in what reaction that the Ukraine-Russian war has induced from the European Union, from Japan and other democracies in terms of looking at the resilience in their supply chains. So uh, that should be an interesting discussion.
1: Brilliant. Well, thanks very much for listening and we'll be back next week with more What China Wants.